Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, for Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word. Silence any voice but yours. Help us to hear and obey your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So today we are doing something different. Instead of talking about 1 Samuel, we're going to talk about small groups, small group ministry. Last week, Tim mentioned something that we need to discuss a bit more before we get started with our text and topic, just to clarify. Tim talked about Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening and how this form of church, this religious revival, is engineered and has influenced Christianity here in America. Marketing of charismatic preaching, altar calls, and a prosperity gospel have all been selling points of a sort. These points can drive the church into a ministry that focuses on growth solely for the sake of growth. But growth is not necessarily the goal. The end of Matthew 28 tells us that discipleship is the goal. So as we talk about small groups, we should be clear of the goal of small group ministry. It is to make disciples of each other. Our text today calls us into community with each other. We want to provide to you a way in which you can be supported, part of a community where you can learn how to live a godly life even in the challenges of sin. This is why Christ the King organizes community groups. Our text today calls us away from the worldly pursuits of idolatry and calls us to a community where we are renewed, forgiving, and living in harmony. I have an example, a story, to try to summarize the importance of community in the church. This is a rendition of a story called The Lonely Ember or The Silent Sermon. 
There was a pastor at a local church in a small town up north. He had been there for a couple years, and he had gotten to know just about everyone in the congregation. The lives of the congregants ebbed and flowed like any other church and like any other community. People lost their spouses, their parents. People got married and had children, such as life. One man who was a widower had been absent from the worship service on Sunday. As the months rolled by, the church sent out letters, even tried to make some phone calls, but nothing came of it. The man was still not coming to church. Eventually, the pastor decided to go out to his house and visit with the man. If not to get him back to the worship, at least to check on him and his well-being. It was a winter day. It was snowing and cold. When the pastor arrived, he got out of his car and trudged up the sidewalk, knocked on the door. The man opened the door, saw the pastor, and let him in. He didn't say anything to him. Instead, he just turned and walked back to his chair that was by the fireplace. He motioned for the pastor to sit in that chair that was beside him. The fireplace was burning, and both men just sat and stared at the crackling flames. This was the only sound in the room. Neither man said a word. As they were watching that fire, a, a chunk of wood, a large ember, a brand, fell away from the main body of fire and rolled to the side of the fireplace. It kept burning for a little bit, but then the flame died down, and eventually the ember was just glowing red hot. Then that glow started to fade just a bit. Slowly, the gray ash and dark black charcoal seemed to be smothering the glow, and it faded from red to orange and slowly yielded to ashen gray. The pastor, still not saying a word, picked up the pike, the fire poker, and gently pushed the coal closer to the fire. At once, the brand caught on fire and was burning intensely. The old man chuckled and said, All right, Reverend, I'll see you in church next Sunday. There is a report that the Barna Group put out a couple years ago, and one that's more recent, taking the COVID pandemic into account. The first report, the one in 2016, said that their poll had found that 73% of people in America identified as Christian. Of this number, only 31% classified themselves as practicing Christians. That is, people who say their faith is important to them and who attend church at least once a month. There's another report that the Barna Group has put out about church attendance during COVID-19. It says that 32% of practicing Christians, those who say their faith is important and go to church at least once a month, 32% have stopped attending church altogether. Among Christian millennials, 50% say they have not attended church in the past four weeks. The same report hints that those who are no longer attending church bear more emotional burdens. Now, I know those numbers, the percentages were hard to track, and I also know that there are certainly medical reasons for missing church. I bring this to your attention to highlight how important it is to come together to be part of the church. Of course, we should also understand what we mean by church. Our denomination defines church as this, 
to have a number of professing Christians and their children gathering together in divine worship and in godly living, agreeable to the scriptures and submitting to the lawful government of Christ's kingdom under the jurisdiction of a session. If you didn't hear the first part, let me repeat it. A number of professing Christians with their children gathering for divine worship and godly living. We're talking about the importance of the Christian community. The experiences of Christians are wide and varied. A number of us grew up in the church, and some did not. Some recognized Christ as Lord from an early age and have never strayed. So others grow up and feel the need to be lost in the world for some time. And some have been lost and are now found. The apostle that we know as Paul was lost for most of his life until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. We can see a marked difference in the way in which Paul lived his life from that point on. So it's not any wonder why Paul knows about this change when you become a Christian. Paul knows of the world and its ways, and he knows of the peace which surpasses all understanding, which is the peace of Christ. This is a peace that provides for harmony in the community. When someone turns to Christ, as Paul did, as I did, they are turning from the ways of the world. We are essentially putting to death, as Paul describes in verse 5, that earthly nature. This is the very nature that we are surrounded with today. This is the very nature that, unfortunately, it is doled out to us on a constant and unrelenting barrage. Sexual immorality, impurity, turn on your TV. It's right there. Lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. We're fools to think that every ad, every mainstream media event, most movies and most things on the radio don't offer something that turn our heads from God and godly living. The 2021 Grammys had a song I can't even name here. It seems that the powers and principalities of the air are quite busy in rapturing our attention, grabbing the thoughts of our children and distracting us from that godly living. When I became a Christian, which is to say that when I realized who Christ is and devoted my life to him, it was a great and wonderfully relieving experience. It happened not far from here. I walked into a coffee shop, a slave, and walked out a free man. I'd have been talking with and praying with the fire department's chaplain, and prior to this, I'd been reading the Bible. And of course, I still did, but truly, when I walked out of the Starbucks that day, I didn't know where to go, or really what to do. I didn't know anything about church, what would be a good church or a bad church, but I found out quickly that sin and temptation was still ever-present in the world. I was still confronted. Changed, yes, but still tempted. I realized rather quickly that this new walk that I was embarking on was going to be difficult, and I remember feeling alone. But there before me was the path of sanctification, the walk of faith beside and towards Christ. What Paul calls for Christians to do, to rid yourselves, as it says in verse 8, of things like anger, rage, 
malice, slander, and filthy language. It's a call to works, not works righteousness. But I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that the covenant of grace that God has generously given to us, that there is an expectation that God has for us. Paul is giving us some tools to put in our toolbox. Grace and faith should compel us into good works. Should we say we are Christian and practice sexual immorality? Should we say we are Christian and pursue evil desires? Should we say we are Christian and covet those things that others have? No. These are all things that lead us away from God. They lead us to division, not to unity. When Paul tells the church not to lie to one another, to put off the old self with its practices, it's because these are caustic to community. How many friends do you like going to hang out with who are angry or who lie to you or talk behind your back? How long does a community last when these practices are mainstream? Our fellow Christians, our brothers and sisters, if there's a place or a group of people that we can be ourselves, that we can be refreshed, that everyone can know our name, it shouldn't be a bar named Cheers, it should be a church. But as Paul is talking about, as James talks about as well, it takes a degree of work. Grace and faith come together and we should have good works. Paul wrote to the Philippians and tells them to work on your faith with fear and trembling. This is not a works righteousness. This is not a call to try to earn your salvation. It is a call to realize that you are saved in Christ Jesus, that the test has been taken and you passed. It's a call to freely follow Jesus Christ and put to work those qualities that let you love God and love others. It's a calling to be something new. Paul exhorts the Colossians to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is an expectation that we come to realize as we shake off the vices of secularism, the things that we can be accustomed to when we focus on what Paul has called in Colossians 3.5, the earthly things. These things are, are what a lot of people are walking with today. When we turn from these, we are renewed in Christ. And from that moment on, we need good, strong Christian fellowship. We need to go to church. We need to sit in rows and worship and learn and break bread in communion on Sunday. But we also need to sit in a circle and be discipled. And Paul knows. He knows that people who have died to Christ to put on a new self... And this new self needs to be renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. This is what we see in verses, uh, verse 10. After we put to death that which is earthly in us, we put on the new self. These new things are counter to the culture. They are counter to what the powers and principalities teach us. This is what Paul explains in verse 12. Paul counters the vices of what is earthly with these. Compassionate hearts... Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul calls on us to bear with one another, here in verse 13, to forgive one another. Paul references this word forgiveness three times in this verse. 
And when we see this in a biblical verse, it usually means we should pay attention. This is a tough thing, forgiveness. It's tough because it is a call for us to give something that is very dear, very intimate. The word actually means to give as in a favor or to give graciously. It is showing someone who doesn't deserve it grace. It is a canceling of a debt that is owed or perceived to be owed. For this to happen, for us to be able to grant this sort of grace, we have to realize that we are the recipients of a grace that we can never match, ever. This is the grace that Christ has given to us. Reconciling this grace is even difficult. For if we do this, we are truly understanding of this reconciliation, then we are walking in peace with God and with his creation. But to get to this point, to this understanding, it's hard. Interestingly, Paul calls on the church to put on love because this binds everything in harmony. This comes just after the call to forgive in verse 13. Yet we are complex creatures. Oftentimes it is far easier to forgive those who we hardly even know, let alone love. Truly, more often than not, we find it immensely difficult to forgive those who we love. This is probably because we have let our guard down, we have let the walls drop around our loved ones, and if there is an affront, the feeling of betrayal is very strong. Of course, the forgiveness that is even more difficult is forgiving ourselves. This happens often and is an impediment to truly walking in the grace of God. There's a film called The Power of Forgiveness. In this film, there's a story of three women who lost loved ones in the attack on September 11th. One woman, her name is Rose Foti, lost her son in the collapse of the World Trade Center. He was a firefighter, and his body was never found. Rose had a deep-seated anger towards the city of New York because, in her mind, the city had disgraced the memory of her son when they hauled away the debris from the buildings and carted them off to the Fresh Kills landfill. In fact, she views her son's grave to be the Fresh Kills landfill. The unforgiveness runs very deep within her, and she was very hateful towards the city. As I was listening to the story, the bitterness of this mother was curious for me. It didn't make much sense, or rather the, the anger I thought was misplaced. I would understand being angry at ISIS or Al-Qaeda, but the city of New York? What were they supposed to do? As it turns out, what she was really in need of was forgiveness for herself. You see, she and her son had a massive falling out a few years prior to the attacks on September 11th. It was such an argument that their relationship was never quite the same. She recounts how she longs to be able to ask her son for forgiveness, but now she can't. The opportunity has slipped away. So the root of her unforgiveness toward the city is really rooted in her own very deep-seated need to be forgiven, to understand that she is forgiven. But her son is gone, and in her mind, that forgiveness can never come. 
I want to remind all of us this very important point that Jesus gives to us in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus explains to the Pharisees the greatest commandments. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. I point this out because all too often we stop short when we read a verse. Here, with this call to love God and love others, we often stop just there. Loving God, extremely vital, and loving others, also extremely vital. But we have to finish the verse. We can't just stop with loving others. The rest of the verse says, to love others as yourself. If you do not love yourself, how are you able to love others? How can we have community or harmony with each other? Going back to verse 11, Paul tells us that our community is united in Jesus Christ. Not in government, not in race, not in country or economic status, but in Christ, who reconciles us to God. Our sins are washed clean. We are forgiven. When I preached this in 1 Samuel, I reminded you all that when you ask God for forgiveness, it is done. If you are truly penitent, God forgives you. This is a great mystery, and it is difficult to understand. Paul continues to speak to the Colossians, and he says to put on love, which binds us in harmony. Then in the last three verses, he points to Christ. In verse 15, Christ should rule in our hearts. In verse 16, the word of Christ should dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing you and others. And in verse 17, Paul says to do everything, to do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus. I find it very interesting that Paul first calls him to forgive three times, reminds him to put on love, and then we have three verses extolling the virtues of a close walk with Christ. I think this is intentional. I think that Paul is giving the Colossians and us some tools to help us. Rose Fody, along with many others, did something that is interesting. Rose and two other women, Lynn McGinn and Diane Harding, two others who lost loved ones, got involved in a project to plant a garden of forgiveness. The first such garden is in Beirut, Lebanon. The garden is an idea, a symbol of healing for a community. It is a symbol of forgiveness. Rose and Diane were part of planting this first garden in Beirut. After helping to plant a tree in the garden, after doing this action, Rose felt that she had buried her son there. Instead of Fresh Kills Landfill being his resting place, she felt it was now in Beirut's Garden of Forgiveness. In her action with the Garden of Forgiveness, something shifted for her. What a great mystery this is. When Paul says to put on love, he's calling on the Colossians to an action, a walk of love. Love of God, love of people, and love of ourselves. This action is a mystery, but it leads to harmony. It leads to community. We need each other in this Christian walk. Our world is not supportive of the Christian way of life. There's little positive reinforcement out there, away from the body of Christ that we call the church. 
Just turn on the TV or look back on your life and see where you might have been in this journey. The temptations are real, and they, the powers and principalities, are actively trying to get your attention away from God and away from following Christ. They want to replace the one who is consistent in his love, his word, and his promises. They want to replace your freedom in Christ with slavery to the old earthly things in verse 5. Instead of dwelling in our sin, Paul says to be thankful. Instead of latching onto unforgiveness, Paul says to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Instead of allowing the bitterness of life to destroy our relationships, Paul says to do everything in the name of Jesus, who came so that you may have life, have it abundantly, and live in harmony with one another. Let us pray. Almighty God, who has given us grace through your Son, Jesus Christ, grant to us that we may earnestly desire, wisely search out, truly perceive, and perfectly fulfill those things which are well-pleasing in your sight, to the praise and glory of your name. Amen.